Please take your seats. And if you'd like to open your Bible up to Genesis chapter 12, it'll roughly be uh, page 8 to 10 in the, the little black church Bibles. Um, we're continuing on uh, where we started from last week, thinking about the promises of God and what, what it looks like to respond to those and live by those in faith. So I'm just going to read Genesis 12, verses 10 to 20. And then we're going to um, ask the Lord for help to apply these things to our everyday lives. Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 10 to 20. We're in chapters 12 to 14 today, and we'll work through those as we go along. So please do keep it open in front of you. Hear the word of the living God. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Sorry, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you've done to me? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men order concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let me just pray for us as we come to God's word. Father, we are so thankful that you speak to us by your spirit through your word. We thank you that you help us to see your word, to believe it, to obey it, and to trust it. And we pray for that help now we pray that we would humble ourselves before your word, that we would encounter Jesus in all his grace and mercy as we come to your word, and that you would help us to respond in obedience and faith as a result of our time under your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I want to introduce you to uh, Mike. Mike is a new Christian. He's a new Christian. He started out well. He loves getting to know Jesus better. He loves being a part of this new church that he belongs to. But he finds it hard to tell his old mates about his new faith. He doesn't want to be disowned by them, so he slips back into his old way of life when he is around them. And sometimes he sees how they live, how he used to live, and there's part of him thinks maybe that life was better. And on top of this, as a new Christian... He sees that living as a Christian isn't easy. He sees Christians in his own church, and his own country, facing opposition for their faith. And even more so, the Christians he sees around the world. And he wonders to himself, is this whole Christian thing a battle worth fighting for? His new faith is being tested. How will he respond? Will he respond in faith, will he remain faithful? Last week we saw in Genesis 12 the promises that God made to 
Abraham and the response that was required of us as a result of those promises, a response of obedient faith, yet the response that's required of us doesn't pretend that faith is easy. We can all resonate with Mike's circumstances, whether we're new Christians or we're Christians far down the road. We don't pretend that faith is easy or natural given our own sin, given the hard decisions we face, given the harsh circumstances we sometimes experience, and given the opposition and the cost that we're called to count. And we see actually as well that the Bible teaches us God uses tests to mature our faith. He doesn't want our faith to be a kind of immature, fair-weather kind of faith. He wants our faith to be a mature, steadfast faith, so He tests it. He allows us to experience things that will produce a stronger faith. James 1 tells us this, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So if you're a Christian here this morning, these chapters in Genesis are here to remind us that tests will come our way. Tests will come our way. They are here to mature our faith, but the big reminder is that God will remain faithful. As a church, we are called to remember here this morning that we walk through those tests not alone, but together. We should be concerned as a church about seeing one another's faith hold up in those tests and mature as Christians. And maybe you're not Christian here this morning, or you're figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. Here, these chapters this morning uh, give you a picture into what you're getting yourself in for as you follow Jesus. Here's what lies ahead but know that God will remain faithful and that remaining faithful to him, even in the midst of tests, leads to eternal life and eternal reward, and it's totally worth it. So that's what we're going to see this morning. The big thing that we're going to see here this morning is this. When tested, choose faith in a faithful God. When tested, we're called to choose faith in a faithful God. First thing we see together then is this. When tested, God's faithfulness means I can choose faith over fear. If you look down again at verse 10, Abraham's traveled into the promised land as God had called him to, and then in verse 10, we tell, it tells us that there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. Here's their first big test. God's made his promises. Here's their first big test. Are they going to trust those promises? There's a famine, and it's a severe famine. So they go down to Egypt to seek provision. Some believe that Abraham even going to Egypt in the first place is an act of faithlessness since he was leaving the land that God had called him to go to and that he was evidencing a lack of trust in God to provide for him. And I think that's a fair assessment as we see in other parts of Genesis, God's people are warned not to go down to Egypt. Either way, whether it was a faithless thing for him to go down there or not, either way, the big problem, the big concern is how he behaves when he gets there. Out of fear for his own life, he essentially throws Sarai under the bus. He throws her under the bus in a deceptive, cowardly, and selfish way. He's chosen fear over faith in God's promises. Remember the promises that God made to Abraham? He was going to make him into a great nation. He, he was going to give him offspring. And here Abraham throws Sarai, the means by which that offspring would come. Here he is throwing that very means under the bus. He doesn't believe God can do what he said he would do. 
He doesn't believe God is big enough to provide for them in famine and protect them in Egypt. What are the consequences of acting out of fear over faith? Well, we see that Abraham dishonors God by not trusting him. We see that in going to Egypt and in throwing Sarah into the situation, he jeopardizes not only her future, but essentially the future of his family and the nation that would come from him. And he causes Sarah, Sarai to suffer the consequences of his fear-based decision. She's forced to lie by him. She's taken, essentially abducted into Pharaoh's house. And we'll see in a moment that his behavior also leads to Egypt being cursed, the very reverse of what he was called to do back in Genesis 12. They're meant to bless the nations, not bring their curse. Two things to note here to highlight. Choosing fear over faith not only impacts us, but it can detrimentally impact those around us the way Sarah was. And in verse 16, you see Abraham makes this decision. He he goes about it in this unfaithful way. Verse 16, we see that Pharaoh dealt well with Abraham. He had sheep and oxen. He gets all these possessions. So it kind of seems like this cowardly, deceptive decision has paid off. But we shouldn't be fooled into thinking that just because Abraham has these material blessings that his decision and his act, his obedience was faithful. The consequences of our sinful behavior and choices aren't always immediate. Don't be fooled by the delay. We shouldn't automatically link material blessing or health or provision with God's blessing. Bottom line is this, this is not just a slip up from Abraham. This is a deeply serious, shameful, and significant failure. But, verse 17, you see it? Verse 17 begins with that, but, but, God is faithful. God graciously steps in, in the midst of this mess, to deliver Abraham and Sarai. He inflicts plagues upon Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh releases Abraham and Sarai. See how much grace God shows Abraham in this circumstances, despite his lack of faith, despite his terrible decisions, he delivers him. He provides abundantly for him, verse 16, and then the beginning of chapter 13 show us that. He protects him and Sarai, and he brings them back out of Egypt. He brings them back home. Here's the good news for you and me this morning. Because of God's faithfulness, because of God's promises, God will still remain gracious to us even when we get it so wrong. Even when we get it so wrong. Our inclusion in the promises of God don't ultimately depend on how good we are, but on the grace of God, the undeserved favor of God. And the same is true for you and me as it was for Abram back then. One thing we should note is that Abraham's journey into and out of Egypt really is the beginning of a biblical pattern. A biblical pattern of the deliverance of God's people throughout the Bible, throughout history, particularly the Exodus generation. We see that Abraham goes down into Egypt. He fails. He messes up. We see the Exodus generation. God brings them out of Egypt, but they also fail in the wilderness. You too, 
you and I too by nature fail. Yet there was one who went down to Egypt and came out and lived a life of perfect faithfulness, Jesus. Matthew 2.15 reminds us that out of Egypt I called my son. Jesus is the faithful Abram. Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience and faith on our behalf. He took the punishment for our sins on the cross. He paid the debt of our faithlessness. He was resurrected by God and is now reigning in heaven soon to return. And anyone who turns from their sin and puts their faith in him becomes an heir of these promises, all by grace. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. He was faithful even though we are not. And we gain the benefits of his faithfulness and of his death and of his resurrection. Galatians 3, as we thought about last week, reminds us that if we are Christ's, then we are Abraham's offspring and we are heirs of this promise by grace. So Jesus is faithful. And when our faith is in him, no matter how much our faith may waver or feel weak at times, then we can be certain of God's gracious deliverance. What about Mike then? Allowing fear of his friends to determine how he lives. Well, it's, this passage is a warning to him. Like Abram, don't leave God's promises. Don't leave the place of God's promises. Like the Exodus generation, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back to your old way of life. It only leads to ruin and disaster. Mike is warned here, beware of the consequences of going back to your old way of life, not just on you, but what impact that will have on those around you. Consider how your disobedience to God will mean that you won't serve as a source of blessing to your friends, to those around you, by being a good gospel witness to them. Mike needs to be reminded that he needs to choose fear of God and obedience to him rather than being afraid of his friends and that God is worthy of his obedience. He needs to be reminded of the promises that God has made to him, that what he gains far outweighs anything he might lose from following Jesus. He needs to not look back doesn't necessarily mean he needs to abandon those friendships unless it would be wise to, but if they abandon him, God will never leave him. And he needs to know, like you and I, that stumbling and failing when it comes to our faith doesn't remove God's favor on our lives if we're in Christ. We all stumble. We all fall. If we're in Christ, God's favor will never be removed from us. Maybe for you and me, that fear-based obedience, as opposed to faith-based obedience, is manifesting itself in similar ways. Fear of rejection. Fear of provision. Maybe material provision and the temptation to gain provision or wealth in an ungodly way. Maybe it's fear that's manifested in telling lies about ourselves to look good or comparing ourselves with others. Maybe it's the fear of loneliness and the temptation to compromise when it comes to God's design for relationships. Maybe it's fear and evangelism as we seek to share our faith. Proverbs 29, 25 tells us this, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. 
That's what Abraham needed to be reminded of. That's what we needed to be reminded of. If we fear God, if we trust him, we will be safe. Uh, the author, Tim Chester, says this, there is a natural fear. There, it's not that fear in and of itself is necessarily sinful. There is a natural fear. Fear in the face of threat is natural, but natural fear needs to be regulated by faith. We must regulate our fear by faith. Faith in God's promises and fear of the God who makes those promises. So that's test number one, faith over fear. Test number two is faith over sight. If you look down with me at chapter 13, I'm just going to read the first seven verses in chapter uh, 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him. Okay, so Lot comes back into the scene, into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Okay, he's back to the start between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So they returned to Canaan, they return to the place where they began. They've now got all this stuff with them, all this material possessions given by the grace of God. And in three, verse 3 and 4 there, we see this picture of Abraham's back where he belongs. He's back home. He's back in God's place, worshiping God, calling on his name. Should never have left. And in some ways, he's starting from scratch again here. We're back to verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8. It's almost like we're back to the start again. God has graciously picked up a stumbling Abraham and placed him on his feet again where he first showed signs of faith. Now we see him encounter test number two. But this time, we'll see a more mature faith, a more mature faith which has been forged in the trials and the failures of Egypt. Verse 5 to 7, as we read, we see Abraham and Lot, they've got all this possession and there's basically not room for them both. Conflict that breaks out between the herdsmen of Abram and Lot. How will Abram respond to this test? Will he choose this time to respond in faith? The answer is, yes, he does. Verse 8 to 13, we essentially see Abram turn around to Lot and say, hey, Lot, look, look around, okay? Look around you. Choose where you want to go. We can't both stay here. You choose where you want to go. And wherever you go, I'll go the opposite way. You have to remember here that the promise was given to Abram. Abram is, is Lot's uncle. He, he's giving the preference of choice to his nephew. The promise was given to Abraham. Surely Abraham has the right to dictate to Lot where he should go. And the land itself is not insignificant. It's a significant part of the promise that God has made. Here we see how much Abraham is generously willing to, to cede control to, to God, to, to Lot. He's generously and confidently, confidently letting Lot choose where he wants to go. Why? 
because he's learned to trust God. Because he's not living anymore with what's in front of him. He's not living anymore by what he sees, but by faith in what he's heard, by faith in God's promises. And note that that leads him not just to cede control to the Lord and to trust him for what the outcome might be, but to love his nephew. Unlike before where he choose, chose to throw his wife under the bus. See his faith mature. And we see a great contrast here between the choices that Abram and Lot make. If you look down at verse 10, Abram gives Lot this choice. Lot, in verse 10, lifts up his eyes and sees that the Jordan Valley is good. He looks towards the city of Sodom and thinks it looks great. It's kind of an echo of Genesis 3, 6. Lot looks up and sees something that seems good. Genesis 3, 6, 6 Eve saw that the tree was good for food. We have the sinful pattern here repeating itself. We have Lot living by sight rather than by faith. Where he looks to, where he ends up, if it's not right on the edge of the promised land, then it's outside of it. Lot describes it in verse 10 as being like Eden, well watered, but also like the land of Egypt. Warning, Warning, that's not what you should be looking for. Lot wants to go back to Egypt. He remembers what Egypt was like when he was down there with Abraham and Sarai, and he thinks, oh, that looks like Egypt. I want to go there. He thinks he'll find Eden there. By heading east, heading back to Egypt, something that the Exodus generation wanted to do, if you know the book of Exodus, doesn't take him closer to Eden, but only further away. Okay? In Genesis, going east is bad news. Going east is bad news. And us West Coasters would say that's true of Scotland as well, right? Lot chooses to walk by sight rather than by faith. Faith would mean staying in the land, as Abraham does at the beginning of verse 12. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, and he did that because of faith in God's promises. Sight leads, leads Lot to move east, further away from God, and further into sin. We see that in verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. We see these verses warn us that Lot's heading towards a place of sin. A place of 13, great sin. A place that in a few weeks is not going to be a well-watered garden. Chapters 18 and 19, it will be reduced to ash. And Lot wants to pitch his tent as close to it as he possibly can. That's where living by sight gets us. We don't only get close to sin, we will get caught up in it and experience the devastating consequences of which we'll see over the next number of chapters. The question verses 8 to 13 poses for you and me this morning is this, are we going to live by faith or are we going to live by sight? 
Will we imitate Abram's faith or Lot's? Are we going to choose to settle our lives? Are we going to choose to pitch our tents, so to speak, in his place based on his promises? Or will we, like Lot, choose to settle our lives and pitch our tents next to sin and reap the consequences? The exhortation here is choose to live by faith the way Abram does. Choose to trust God's promises. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. 2 Corinthians 5, we're encouraged to walk by faith, not by sight. As a number of commentators have called it, we're to be people of the ear, not people of the eye. We're to be people of the word, not people of the world. That's how Christians are to live, by ear, by word, not by sight. So what about our friend Mike? Mike is tempted to look at his old way of life and think that at times it looks better than the life he's now called to rather than living by faith in God's promises. He sees the, the casual relationships and sex that he and his friends once enjoyed as opposed to purity, the purity that Jesus now calls him to. He sees the way his mates just abandon their family responsibilities to spend time with the lads and he thinks that looks great. Yet he knows that he's called to sacrifice his ter- ter- time to serve others and disciple them. He sees the way they earn extra money and cash under the counter or through illegal means, how they buy fancier clothes, have nicer cars than him, have nicer homes, whilst he is now called to give of his resources to the work of the gospel. He sees his friends make decisions based solely on their own desires and wants, rather than having to consider the interests of his family life and church life. He sees these things, and he sometimes wonders if it is better. He thinks these ways seem better, but what he needs to hear, and what we need to hear, is God's promises, God's ways, God's place, God's people, God's blessing. He needs to hear that God's blessing far outweighs anything we might see with our eyes, both now and into eternity. That's what he needs to be reminded of. We need to heed the warning of pitching our tent, our lives too close to sin like Lot. So let me ask us this morning, what sins in our lives are we choosing to pitch our tents next to? One way to discern that is to ask ourselves this question. What sin or temptation would we most readily pursue if we knew no one would find out about it and that there were no consequences both with other people or even with God. If that was the case, where would you most like to pitch your tent right now? Whatever that is, start living by faith rather than by sight. Start praying to the Lord. Start seeking to kill sin sin by the strength of the Spirit. Look the other way. Don't buy the pleasure that it sells you. The pleasure of sin is fleeting. But if we choose to give in to it, it will eternally destroy us. Look the other way. Don't do what Lot did. Do what Abraham did. Live by faith. And the life lived by faith and not by sight is reaffirmed for Abram and for us in verses 14 to 17. We see Abram make the right choice. 
And in verses 14 to 17 of chapter 13, the Lord affirms, reaffirms for Abraham back then and then for us now that choosing to live by sight, choosing, sorry, choosing to live by faith is worth it. He, in a sense, rewards him here for his faith. The promise of chapter 12, verse 7, is repeated in chapter 13, verse 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. You notice that he brings for the first time that illustration, dust of the earth. He is re-emphasizing, expanding, making the promise seem bigger to Abraham. He's saying, you've chosen to live by faith. Now I'm going to give you a window into just how amazing that is. Your descendants, your offspring will be as the dust of the earth, innumerable. And then the Lord calls Abraham to experience the length and breadth of God's promises, literally by getting up and going for a walk. He says, go and walk the length and breadth of the land that I'm going to give you. Here's the reward for living by faith. Maybe one of the biggest reasons our faith is often weak and we instead live by sight is because we haven't spent enough time walking around in God's promises. We haven't spent enough time in God's word with God's people, worshiping the Lord, walking around in God's expansive eternal promises. Let me encourage all of us to do that to dwell on his promises, to dwell on Christ, to meditate on the promises that are true of us now and that await us at Christ's return. And when we do that, let's hammer the pegs of our tents and of our lives into those promises. Let's choose to settle there, not drift towards sin, to settle in those promises. Let's set up home there. Let's choose to make our home in God's place with God's people, which for us now is the church, but in eternity it will be all nations in a new creation. Let's choose to come under God's blessing, to obey his commands, and to worship the Lord as Abram does at the end of verse 18, to call upon the name of the Lord. Test number one, faith over fear. Test number two, faith over sight. And now we come to test number three, faith over might. When tested, God's faith, when tested, God's faithfulness means I can choose faith over might. We're in chapter 14 now. We're making our way through these chapters fairly quickly. Hopefully you're able to keep track. Uh, there's going to be a map up on the screen there. Here we kind of are transported into some kind of... Um, uh, into, into a battle scene. I know that's a little bit small, apologies. Uh, but here we have, we have um, four kings from the east. So four kings coming up from the east, um, kind of from where Abraham first came from. They come into God's land, into the land of Canaan, um, to squash the rebellion of five kings who live here. So four kings come from the east, they come down here. This is the, 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 the Dead Sea. They come down here. They, they make their way all along the bottom of the land. They have a few battles, a few fights, and then they finally clash with these five kings in the valley of Sidon. That's what's happening here in these early verses of chapter 14. These four eastern kings come to squash these, this rebellion from five kings who are living in and around the Dead Sea. These four eastern kings were their overlords. They were kind of like their, their rulers. The five kings got fed up of them. 
and then they come to squash the rebellion. And we see in verse 10 that the five kings are thoroughly defeated. These four kings, by the way, these guys are big, they are bad, and they are powerful. And in verse 10, we see that they defeat the five kings living in and around the edge of the land of Canaan. Verse 11 tells us the eastern kings plunder them and they head back east. So they, they fight here in, in the valley of Siddim and then they make their way back east up towards there. But then uh, we see here that as part of their victory, they take Lot with them. They abduct Lot. That's what happens. Lot here is experiencing the consequences of living by sight, of choosing to move his tent near to Sodom. In fact, verse 12 tells us, we left him with his tent near Sodom. Chapter 14, verse 12. Sorry, not verse 12. Is it verse 12? Yes, verse 12 tells us he wasn't just close to Sodom, he was now dwelling in it. Here's the consequences. He's abducted. He's taken away. But again, verses 13 to 16, we see God at work. Abram finds out that Lot's been abducted through one of his allies. Abram gathers 318 trained men. They pursue the four eastern kings. They defeat them under the cover of darkness. They plunder them and they rescue Lot. So this red line here, that's Abram finding out that Lot's been abducted. He chases them all the way up to Dan. He plunders them by night, and then they flee. Four big, bad, powerful kings who've just wiped out five other kings, but they're defeated by just 318 of Abram's men. How did he win? Well, verses 17 to 24 tell us. Ultimately, it was because of God. We see the appearance of this king-priest figure, Melchizedek, if that's how you pronounce it. It's a cool name, right? Melchizedek. Who blesses Abraham and says in verses 19 to 20, look down with me, chapter 14, verses 19 to 20, he says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. How did 318 men defeat these four big, bad, powerful kings by the might and power of God. Not Abram. It was by God. It was God that enabled Abram to defeat the kings and rescue Lot. And Abram himself acknowledges this and once again entrusts himself and his future to God. Consider how successful Abram has been here, right? 318 men. He's just defeated these four big bad kings. The promise of the land is in the back of his mind, and he might be tempted to think, hey, why don't we just take the whole land? Let's just do it now. Let's just crush everyone. Remember the, 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 the Canaanites and the Perizzites back in chapter 13, verse 7, were living in the land. So there's people here who are not God's people. Wonder if that crept across his mind. Hey, Guys, we absolutely killed it against those four kings. Let's just take the land now. Yeah, he doesn't do that. 
like he did with Lot, he trusts God to give him the land in his way and in his timing. Instead of choosing to take the land by might, Abram chooses faith. For Abram then, what was under threat was the land and his nephew Lot. For us, opposition will be in the form of opposition to the gospel, the church, our fellow believers, even maybe us personally. So that was what was under threat for Abram. The land was being invaded by these kings. The land was under threat. His family was under threat. For you and me today, the threat can come in the form of opposition to the gospel, opposition to the church, our fellow believers, and even us personally. And we too must fight. We don't fight with swords, okay? We find 318 men to go with swords up to, I don't know, the Scottish Parliament or something. That's a terrible application of this passage. We don't fight with swords. We fight by declaring and defending the truth of the gospel. That's how Christ's kingdom is built. Yet we do so in Christ's strength by his spirit, knowing ultimately it's Jesus who builds the kingdom. It's God who will give him the land. We're to fight like him, like Abram, selflessly. He wasn't in this for the money. He was in it for Lot and for the honor of the Lord. He fights sacrificially. Remember, in going to fight, he's risking his own life. He fights sacrificially and he fights with faith. And notice too here, another couple of lessons for us is that when we do fight, look at the end of verse 20. If we do see victory in some form, we must honor the Lord. Abraham gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. He recognizes it's all the Lord and he honors him. And then verses 21 to 24, we see the king of Sodom circle back around. And Abraham avoids getting himself into the debt of the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom offers him something and Abraham doesn't take anything from him. He doesn't give him any leverage to say that he made Abraham rich. So you, you and I too are not to compromise ourselves or put ourselves in a position where we would be prevented from saying this was all of God. God did this. What about our friend Mike? He sees opposition to his fellow Christians. He fears opposition. He sees opposition globally to the gospel. He needs to realize and to learn that as Christians, we will face seemingly unwinnable battles. But God is fighting for us. And though we're called to be active, any victory will only ever come about because of God. In fact, in Jesus, the victory has already been won regardless of how battles in this life end up or how much we count it cost, the ultimate victory is already won. Mike needs to know that when faced with opposition, fighting in the Lord's strength looks like honestly and courageously declaring the truth of Christ in love. It means that if there's any kind of victory over the opposition and hardships of life, his first response should be to honor the Lord, to give of his tenth. And not compromising means refusing to take anything from those who oppose us so that our witness for Jesus wouldn't be tarnished or we would take any glory from God. But what made the difference for Abraham in this test? What makes the difference for us? What enables you and I to remain 
faithful to still be included in those promises. Let's circle back to this kind of mysterious Melchizedek figure. He gets in the way between the king of Sodom and Abram. It's ultimately through Melchizedek that Abram's able to remain faithful in this situation. Psalm 110, Hebrews 5 and 7 reveal to us that Abram's encounter with Melchizedek, this king priest, anticipates our encounter with one after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 5 and 7 teach us. Melchizedek here brings brings God's blessing to Abraham and points out, hey, God delivered you. Jesus, in the order of Melchizedek, is the source of God's blessing. It is through him that we have eternal deliverance. We need an encounter with Melchizedek. We need an encounter with Jesus. Hebrews 7, 24 to 27 says this, but he that is Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in verse 26, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So here we have, in the midst of tests and trials, in the midst of tests and trials that our faith will go through, a reminder that we have a faithful Savior in Jesus who saves us to the uttermost, who is always interceding for us. The call then is to draw near to God through him and to look to him in faith. So when tested, when tested, loved ones, let's choose faith in a faithful God. When tested, remember Jesus. Our faith rests in him, not in ourselves. Our faith rests in him. He saves us. He is the faithful one. His body and blood guarantee that sinful people like you and me can be heirs of these promises. So let's look to him in faith and have our faith strengthened. Let's choose faith over sight, over fear, over might, because we have a faithful God who keeps his promises. Let me just pray for us. Father, we come before you as those who face many trials and temptations, who find it difficult to live in this world by faith, and oh, so often, Father, we live by sight, we live in what seems live by what seems good, what seems pleasurable, which seems will give us fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction. Father, forgive us for that. Help our hearts to hold on to the, the promises of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to hold, hold on to all the things that are true of us in him and all the things that are promised for us in the future because of him. Help us to walk by faith. 
And remind us deeply, Father, that even when we stumble like Abraham, even when we fall, even when we make mistakes, our standing in those promises, our standing in salvation is all because of grace. And from that place of security, help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.